Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I am a yoga teacher with many years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to show you how to get confident, speak clearly, feel authentic, grow your impact, earn your worth, and build a community. For years, I've been working with teachers in my signature program, the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program, and I've seen so many teachers transform, and I can help you get there too. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. In addition to the podcast, don't forget to also follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 225. I am recording this on February 2nd, and this episode, 2023, and this episode will go live on February 6th of 2023. So if you're listening in the month of February, we're cruising right through this year. I saw this funny thing on Jimmy Kimmel uh, yesterday. He had clips of all the newscasters yesterday saying, can you believe it's already February? I mean, it's so obvious, but it's just hilarious how it becomes such a topic of conversation. Having said that, though, I will also add to that feeling that I cannot believe how fast time is going. And it's just another thing. And I was thinking as Jimmy was joking about all the newscasters and their statements, I was just thinking about. Um, just the passage of time and how our perception can really vary depending on where we're at and just how important it is to me to have a plan, to be on track, to have goals, to track things and writing and just all of those habits that come from being the way I am and the way I hope on some level you are too, seeing the benefits of having habits that lead to goals, that lead to results as it relates to your yoga teaching. Because otherwise we are just at the end of every month saying, oh, here's another month and I'm no closer to where I wanna be. And I don't want that to be you. So having said that, um, I wanna start out this episode by just talking a little bit about mindset. And if you haven't listened to the last episode, my interview with hypnotherapist, Lorne Wilson, and the fun story of how I found her on TikTok, go back and take a listen to that episode because it is very much about mindset. And, you know, over the past couple of weeks, I've been doing an even deeper dive into mindset as a topic, in part because of the guests I've had on the show. I have another guest coming up who's going to be talking about um, mindset and manifestation. So just a lot of content about this um just this frame of reference, kind of like putting sunglasses on and and interacting with the world in a different way. I actually now um, spend about 45 minutes a day, uh, not only uh, doing a quick meditation, but also doing some pretty intense reading from just people who are thought leaders in the area of 
manifestation, mindset, neuro-linguistic programming. And it's really amazing to me how, you know, personally years ago, I would have read some of this stuff and thought it was just BS and how now I really see how there are so many choices that we have presented to us every day in terms of how we are going to view a situation. And if we look at it through the lens of being a yoga teacher, we can go into our class, we can teach our class with a certain mindset, or we can go in with a totally different one. And our experience will be completely different. You know, it's like, I think there was a saying in one of the books I'm reading, it's something along the lines of when you change the way you see the world, everything you experience changes. And it's really, it's something along those lines. I'll have to look back and, and, and say it in a future episode correctly. The, the point though is our mindset can change how we experience our, the world. And in our case, our classes. So if we're going into class and we're really, really nervous or we're going into class and we're worried that people are going to get hurt, that can totally change how we experience that class versus if we go in from the perspective of, Here's what I'm going to share. I'm confident in my sequence. I'm confident in my cues. And I'm going to share and be of service with no attachment to results. I mean, I don't know if that's a mantra that you want to write down and use. Feel free. Um, I would say, though, having a mantra of sorts is really, really helpful. Something that really resonates with you that as you step into the room to teach, you can say to yourself, Whatever it is, feet on the floor, do your best, be of service. I am confident, whatever comes to you. I don't know if I've shared this in prior episodes. I think that a mantra can be so powerful for us as yoga teachers because it can really flip the switch so that whatever mindset we had, now we're stepping into our role and our responsibility as a teacher and we're taking responsibility for the mindset that we have. And Doing that with a mantra as kind of a reset is a really powerful way to get ourselves in that right frame of mind. So I wanted to just start out by talking about that one particular thing. Mindset as a topic is something we can go really deep on uh, when it comes to you as a teacher, me as a teacher, um, our community of yoga teachers. I think though it's best discussed in a one-on-one -on -one situation this is where I have, you know, some of the deepest, com I don't want to say deep's not the, the, the perfect word. This is where I have some really transformative conversations with teachers in my program when we start to talk about some of the mindset challenges that they have, that they see, that they feel, and we start to get at like, what's really underneath there, getting at what those underneath beliefs are. Well, I don't think I'm really good enough. Or I remember this one teacher was saying to me, um, some of the other teachers in the studio, I feel like their classes have more people and sometimes they come and take my class and I feel embarrassed that I don't have as many people as them. You know, all these sorts of beliefs start or, or situations create beliefs that lead to just lots of challenges with having a positive mindset. And that absolutely seeps into how we come across. You know, we have so much on our plate as a yoga teacher to create um, 
a space for people so that they can be moved, so that they can be transformed, so that they can face challenges on the yoga mat. And you know, I'm sure you've heard the mat is a mirror. So a lot of the things that we resist come up when we're practicing limitations that we may think about ourselves. And if we're going into that role as a yoga teacher and our you know, like you're wearing dirty sunglasses, our lenses aren't clean, our filters are clogged, we're in a negative space. That is absolutely our responsibility to deal with, to manage, to resolve. Because, you know, it's kind of like when you get on the plane and they say, put your oxygen mask on first before you help the young people you're traveling with or the people you're traveling with. That is the same for you and your students. If you are going in to teach your classes and you don't feel like you understand anatomy and you don't feel like you have a good mindset and you don't feel like you can cue with confidence and you don't feel like you can answer student questions and you have been up all night building your sequence and now you're standing there and you have no freaking idea of what comes next. It is your responsibility as a teacher to fix those problems, right? This is not a time to just sort of hope it's going to work out. You know, I mean, the yoga teaching industry, the way we operate is we're all individual silos. We're all individual businesses. We're all individual teachers. We're all our own bosses, even when we work in studios. So for the most part, if you're not taking care of that shit, no one's going to take care of it for you. So, you know, when I talk to teachers, I talked to one this week and, and, they sent me this email and it was like, I'm at the end of my rope. I just really can't, just can't get myself to go into the studio anymore. And, you know, just all these things that have been building up and that's an awful place to be. And by the same token, if you're listening right now and you're feeling like things are really not in a good place, it is your responsibility as a teacher to get someone to help you. So, you know, Again, you can always reach out to me and just share where things are at for you. Um, and I'm happy to kind of listen and share some thoughts and maybe some direction. But I would say don't sit and just be with that because again, you're going in and you need to have the oxygen mask on so that you can help your students with theirs. And so if you're energetically going into teacher classes and you're really feeling like you're not in a good place, and I don't mean something's going on in your personal life that's challenging, or like those things happen. But when you step in that room to teach, you're there as a teacher and your filters, your lenses, your pipes, all of it should be clean. And it's it's different from a situation where, well, I'm new and things feel, all of that's part of growing. All of that's part of growing. I hope you know I'm not talking about that. And I, and I, you know, I'm really talking more about, oh, I just, I know I need to learn more anatomy and I'm just not going to do it. Because honestly, who's going to care if I do it or not? Who cares if I don't really know the cues I'm sharing? What difference does it make if I flub the sequence? It's not that it makes a difference because I'm saying you need to be perfect. It's that I really hope you see, and I literally just had a conversation with the teacher about this before hopping on here to record this episode. I really hope you see that how you feel as a yoga teacher, and I bet as you're listening, you want to feel confident, how your ability to feel confident is inextricably linked to all these things being like they're firing on all cylinders. 
And even if you have things to learn, even as we all do have areas of development we want, when we're not dealing with them and we just sort of hope they're going to get better, that's not being an integrity as a teacher. And I want you to be an integrity as a teacher with yourself so that you can help your students and be an integrity there too. So that is kind of just a mindset piece I wanted to talk about first. The next thing I wanted to talk about, we're gonna get into a couple of tactical things from a teaching perspective. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is something that came up in a lovely um, coaching call I had with one of the teachers this week in my program. And we were talking about modifying things. And so I just wanted to throw out if it's useful for you to think about two general ways that you can approach modifications. So there are two, if you kind of think of, and I was sharing this with her, this idea of a dashboard. You as a teacher, you have this control panel in front of you and you have some volume knobs. And if you think about modifications as two knobs on this dashboard, this control panel, you can turn it up or you can turn it down. So you've got these two knobs. You can turn one of these knobs up uh, actually, both of them you could turn up, both of them you can turn down. And I want you to think about these two knobs are two general approaches to modifications. So one general approach, so one of the knobs, is the student's relationship to gravity. So if I take somebody and they're standing up and I have them do tray, and it's really, really difficult for them because they're older, their sense of balance is not so great, what if I have them lay on their back and do tree on their back? Now you might say, well, then they lose all the benefits of the balance. Yes, but they still get the benefit of the external rotation of the hip. And they also start to get their body into and their nervous system and their muscles and their joints into the position. And then you can progress them to doing it in, in a standing position. And you could certainly use as a midpoint, having them put their hand against the wall. So even if you had them do it on the floor, you can still have them press forward through the heel of the straight leg. You could have them gently press the foot of the bent knee into the standing leg. You could have them pull the belly button into the spine. You can have them mimic a lot of the things that you would have them do in standing when they are laying on their back. So this is what I call changing a student's relationship to gravity as a way to allow them to access a pose that they might not otherwise be able to do in its sort of typical way of being uh, offered. So another good example of that is standing hand to knee pose. So if you have a person stand up, bring your right arm out in front of you, bend your right knee, grab your right knee with your right hand, and then open your knee out to the side. You can have them do it from standing. You can have them do it with their hand, their free hand on a chair or a wall, or you could have them do that laying on their back. So in all those situations, you're changing the first two, they're standing, but they're using the modification of the wall or no wall, chair or no chair, but you're changing their relationship to gravity. So that's one of the knobs. That's one of the things that if you can use that as a way to modify a pose, bring them closer to the ground, that would also count. So taking something like crescent lunge and putting a knee down, that would count as bringing them closer to the ground. Even something like using a block, using a block brings the floor up to them. So that's not exactly changing their relationship to gravity, but it is sort of in a way, because if I go closer to the floor versus standing up, my relationship to gravity as it bears down on me as an external force is different, the closer I am to the ground without getting into a lot of the biomechanics, let's just kind of leave it as positionally, right? I can need, 
either stand up, I can lay on my back, I can lay on my belly, I can get closer to the ground. So all of those examples are one of the knobs on your dashboard. It's changing the student's relationship to gravity. The other knob, the other modification approach from a high level is to decrease the ask on the joints from a range of motion perspective. So that basically means when I say the ask, I mean the requirement. So if I, let's say I'm someone like Michael Phelps and I do the butterfly, that swimming stroke is a huge demand, is a huge, it requires my shoulders have a huge amount of flexibility because I'm taking my arms into a full circle. So I'm using the full circumduction range of motion of my shoulders. That's obviously an extreme example. The same would be true of a pitcher. So these are sports um, sports examples, but I wanted to share them with you because they're really easy, I think, for you to visualize as I'm giving you the example. So now if I take not a Michael Phelps situation and I just take a weightlifter and I just have them pick up a bar and lift the bar up to their chest, they still need some range of motion in their shoulder, but they don't need nearly as much range of motion as Michael Phelps because they're not moving their shoulder in the same way. In the case of just lifting a bar, and bringing it closer to their chest. They're just moving their uh, shoulders in the sagittal plane. So they just need to get some shoulder flexion, but they don't need the circumduction. They don't need taking their arm into a full circle. So the takeaway for you as a yoga teacher is when you're teaching, if you have someone in a posture where the range of motion required in a particular joint is really on the high end, you can modify by simply decreasing the requirement for that joint to do as much as you're asking it to do in the full expression of the pose. So a really basic example of this is, and it's not really a basic pose, but I think it's a really good example of this concept, is if I have somebody in warrior two, I bring them into extended side angle. So let's imagine I'm teaching uh, and I have people in warrior two with the right leg bent. And I say, bring your right arm down to your leg, take your left arm up and over your head. So now you're in extended side angle. Take your upper arm and place your upper hand on your hip. I want you to keep rolling both shoulders open. Now take your left hand and place it behind your back. I want you to see if you can keep the shoulders open, keep rolling the shoulders open. Now take the right hand. If you wanna take the double bind, slide the right hand underneath the front thigh and see if you can link your hands or grab a strap. So you can see in that example, how with every progressive step into higher degree of complexity, it's a higher demand on that left shoulder for range of motion. It's requiring a lot more range of motion in that shoulder. So as a teacher, if I want to offer modifications, of course, I could say to the students as I'm teaching that pose and its progressions, um, I could say, hey, bring your hand to your hip and you can just stay here. If you want, you can reach that hand behind your back. If you want, you can take the double line. So that if you want clarifier is basically demarcating the line where the student knows, okay, this is one variation, that's the next variation. And think of it, here's another metaphor, think of it like steps, they're going up the steps because with every step they go up, it's a higher request, a higher demand, a higher level of ask on the joint, in this case, the shoulder joint to externally rotate. So there's lots of different examples of this. Another example is if I have people in chair pose and I notice as I'm looking at them, their arms are reaching up to the sky, 
but their elbows are all bent and they can't get their arms straight. And if they try to get their arms straight, it causes a big sway back. And that has a lot to do with the latissimus dorsi and the flexibility there. Bottom line, if I'm looking at them and I see with their arms all the way up in the air, the alignment of the pose is not where I want it to be. Well, the ask is too much on, on the shoulders from a flexion perspective, that movement in the sagittal plane forward, that's flexion. So bring the hands to the heart center. Now I'm decreasing the demand on the shoulders for that range of motion to be met. And I'm just bringing the hands to the heart as a way to lessen that. So think of those two knobs on your dashboard. One is um, changing the student's relationship to gravity. The other one is um, decreasing the range of motion requirement of the joint. So you got those two, and those are two general ways to approach modifications. Okay, the other thing I just wanted to make a note of, because this came up in a couple of my coaching calls this week with teachers in my program, assisting. We should probably do a whole episode on assisting, and I'm gonna ask for your help here. If you are listening and you would like a, an episode on assisting, will you send me a DM on Instagram, reference this episode and tell me you wanna hear that and I'll do it if I get enough people to ask for it. And the reason I'm asking for that validation is because um, I don't know how many of you, I don't know how, I don't know how many yoga teachers are assisting anymore. Um, my sense is that assisting was happening a lot. And then there was a lot of emphasis on should we be assisting? How should we be assisting? How can students have agency over their own personal space in their bodies? If teachers are just assisting without asking permission, what's the way to get permission? I feel like when all of that happened, in my mind, it really changed the frequency with which student, uh, with which teachers are assisting. And I don't know that that's the case. That could just be my assumption. So if you are out there and you are listening right now and you are in a studio where assisting is happening like all the time or every once in a while, or you are assisting, you know, this would obviously be a valuable conversation. So let me know what you think. I wanted to just bring up one key point about assisting, having said all of that. And that's the following. <laughs> you better effing know what you're gonna do way before you approach that student. You better know what you're gonna do, what assist you're gonna provide before you approach the student. And this ties in really nicely with the whole conversation that's been had over the past three years in particular around students having agency over their own space, over their own bodies, whether or not somebody touches them. The, the worst way to escalate all the negative things about assisting is to not know what you're doing when you approach the student and now you're in their space and now you're touching them. So you might be listening to this thinking, well, Karen, that's kind of obvious. However, think about well, think about in your own situation, when you approach a student and you're going to provide an assist, like let's imagine, I want you to imagine right now, you're teaching your class, there's a student in the front row, the students are all in downward facing dog and you decide for whatever reason, I think I'm gonna assist this person. Or maybe you notice this person is out of alignment and that's the cue to you to assist them. And that sort of gets into different types of assists, which is a which is part of that larger conversation. So I'm not gonna get into that now, but let's just stick with the scenario that I laid out. 
So you're standing there, you're teaching a class, this person's right in the front row, so they're really close to you from a proximity standpoint. You see something's a little bit out of whack, you're going to approach the student and assist them. And so the question is, what's the point of what you're gonna do and what are you gonna do? And what I will tell you is, most of the time, and I really could make a case for all of the time, I'm going to just stick with most of the time. The reason for what you're going to do lies in understanding the anatomy. And yes, there's energetics. And yes, there's you know other um, types of cues where the why could be connected to something else. However, the underlying reason, rationale, justification can almost always at least be found in the anatomy because your assist is to emphasize or correct for a joint action that you want to see that's part of the pose that you're not seeing. So in this case, for downward facing dog, we could make a case for lengthening the spine. So kind of the typical downward dog assist of standing behind the person, grabbing in the hip hinge, pulling back, lengthens the spine. If I approach the person from the front, so as I am looking at them, I'm looking at their back, I'm they're in downward dog, I'm standing with my feet in between their hands um, and I am facing them, facing their back. The other assist could be I could place my hand on their low back and push up towards the ceiling to emphasize lengthening the spine. So in my mind, when I approach that student, I know I want to lengthen the spine. I know the action I can do with my hand to create that joint movement and that emphasis on that joint, in this case, joints, because the spine is a whole bunch of joints. And that's what I'm going to do. And the reason that this is so important to assisting is because when you have that clear rationale for what you're going to do and why, you go in, you do it, and you leave. It is efficient. It is not lingering. It is not confused. It is not wishy-washy. It is not creepy. It is not anything. It is sort of agnostic. It's sort of vanilla. It sort of just does its job and then goes on. And baked into that approach is an extreme amount of respect for the student and the fact that you are infringing on their space. It's baked in there because if I don't have that, all the alternatives start to bring up all the weird feelings that come up. Like the students, they're like, I don't think this person knows what they're doing, or now their hands are wandering. You know, it's just all of that Pandora's boxes open up. So I hope this little snippet around assisting has been helpful. I wanted to bring this up and then send me the DM if you want to go into more of a conversation about this. Um, okay, so I want to just spend maybe 10 minutes as we head towards the end of this episode, just talking about a business-related topic. So I know that this particular episode has jumped around a little bit. We started with mindset. We then talked about some teaching techniques, and now we're going to talk about a business thing. However, it's a business thing that really relates to mindset, and it has to do with money. And if you listen to a couple of episodes back when I interviewed money mindset coach Allison Chamberlain-Jones, we spent a lot of time on that episode talking about how each of us have, as individuals feel about money and how that can color our beliefs and affect how we feel about ourselves and how we do so much in our lives, the things we buy, 
the things we say about the things we buy. Oh, that's too expensive. Oh, that's cheap. Oh, that's just right. But all of that. And lest you think that that's just a conversation about your personal life. No, 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 no. This is also a conversation about what you charge as a yoga teacher. And so this is also another big conversation. So if you'd like me to do an episode just devoted to uh, the business topic of charging for your classes, charging for your services, send me a DM, send me a DM again and note and reference this that yes, you want to hear that. What I wanted to focus on today was just one aspect of this topic. And it's the aspect of charging what you're worth. Charging what you're worth. Now, charging what you're worth is really comprised of a couple of different things. Sometimes teachers say to me, well, I can't charge more than what, quote, people in my area charge. And I sort of chuckle about that because number one, it's really hard for us to know what people in our area charge because it's not like there's a database where yoga teachers enter their rates. So there really is no incredibly scientific or va- or data-based um, approach to really finding out what other teachers are charging. Second of all, and I'll give you an example, I can remember many, many years ago, probably in the early 2000s, I had read in something online or something in a yoga related magazine. It could have even been, I don't think it was yoga journal, but maybe it was even like, I don't remember where I read it, but it was something about a yoga teacher in New York city. And I'm not going to use her name, but she was very popular at the time. And I think it was an article about a celebrity. And this celebrity was seeing this yoga teacher and this yoga teacher was charging $300 for a 60 minute yoga session. Now, $300 for a 60-minute yoga session, even in today's times, would still be pretty expensive. And I bet for yourself, if you've ever taught a yoga private, you probably have not charged $300. But that doesn't mean you can't, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't. And it doesn't mean that you're ripping somebody off if you charge $300. It really is a matter of what is the value that you are providing and how you frame that, and whether or not you sort of stick to your position that this is what the rate is. And the other component of this is how you view what you're worth. And so I don't know about for you, but a lot of yoga teachers that I talk to tie up the years of experience they have with what their value is and what their worth is. So they'll often say to me, well, I've only been teaching less than a year, therefore I can't charge X. But once I'm teaching two years, then I'll charge X. Well, if that at all resonates with you, I want to poke some holes in that because remember, based on the person that you're teaching, like the student that's paying you, you know way more than them. So instead of measuring yourself against other teachers, why not look at it just from the perspective of you're providing a service you are a skilled professional, you paid thousands of dollars for training, went through training, completed training, and now you're offering the service. Honestly, what the hell difference does it make on some level comparing yourself to other teachers? It doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. So I hope on some level you embrace that even a little bit if you haven't been, and you sort of for now 
even if you just sort of put it to the side. And that's not to say you don't charge more for private sessions when you have five years of experience than when you have 10 years of experience. Like you may raise your rates. All industries raise their rates. All professionals raise their rates as they gain more experience. It's just that to start your baseline, like when I hear from yoga teachers that they're charging 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks for a private, no, 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 no. The baseline rate that you, I believe, should charge for a private is 100 US dollars. I don't care where you live. I don't care what other teachers you think are doing in the area. You are a trained professional. If you were to go to a hairdresser, if you were to go a stylist, if you were to go to a massage therapist, if you were to go to a physical therapist, I mean, physical therapy is a little bit different because that's out of our domain. But when we start to compare ourselves rate-wise to like massage therapy, acupuncture, like those services generally are a hundred bucks an hour. Like I want you to embrace a hundred dollars an hour as a totally reasonable amount to charge for an hour's worth of your time. And honestly, even if someone says to you, I only need to see you for a half an hour, well, you're going to be prepping. You're going to talk to them a little bit before. At the end of the day, it's 60 minutes. So I really wouldn't even change your rate if it's for less than that. And I would really encourage you to just tell anybody you're talking to, my privates are an hour. <laughs> even if you don't have an hour's worth of time, that's what it is. Because by the time I get there and chat and get set up and all that, it's an hour. So I would love to know, send me a DM if this feels really off for you. I would like to hear the reasons why and let's talk about it. So that's one piece, the charging what you're worth. The other thing is let's talk about classes because keep in mind the dynamic is different. When you're teaching for somebody else in a studio, they pretty much set the rate. I mean, I've been teaching for, I don't know, 15, 16 years, I've never had a situation where I've walked into the studio and I've said, hi, I'd love to teach here. I charge $125 per class. Will you accept that? Let's have some negotiations. Like that's just not how it is. The studio is always the one saying, uh, here's what the rate is. Take it, leave it. I mean, that's basically it. Even teachers who are in high, high demand, and I live in Boston and before COVID, there were a handful of teachers I knew of who pretty much had consistently full classes. My understanding is those teachers were paid a base rate plus a head count. So a base rate plus some amount that would change depending on how many people came in. So by virtue of what they were offering and who it resonated with, that ultimately led to a certain class size. And so they're rate of pay would vary depending on how many people they had. And to some extent, they had some control over that. So that's not necessarily negotiating for your rate, but it does give you as a teacher a little bit more of, of uh, an impact on what your rate's going to be per class. Um, so it's sort of, it's not exactly like negotiating rate, but it does give you a little bit of flexibility to get paid more per class than a standard rate. Now, having said that, I love getting paid the same rate all the time when I was teaching public classes because it's just easy for me to know what I'm going to be paid and budget that into my budget and make revenue projections based on that and all of that. So I actually prefer the standard rate regardless of headcount um, as a general rule of thumb. 
The other category I want to talk to you about, though, is when you go out and create your own programs, when you go out to your local schools, when you go out to your local community center, when you go out to the local physical therapy clinic and ask them if they want yoga classes on the side, when you go out to local fitness centers and gyms and all of these other places, you set the rate. You set the rate. You're going to them either because they've asked you, they have a job listing, or you're just pinging them from a, um, from a marketing perspective, you're going into their world as the yoga expert. So you're going to set the rate. And this is not a time for you to be shy about what your rate should be. This is not the time that you say, oh yeah, I'll just take $5 per student. No, <laughs> no. Like I really want you to see how out of your desire to be nice is where I think a lot of this comes from. You're really devaluing your service. And when you devalue your service as a yoga teacher, you devalue the service for all of us as yoga teachers, because then all those people coming to your classes are thinking, well, yoga is five bucks a person. And that's, that's not, that should not be <laughs> like, this is about a valuable service we are providing to people. We could make a huge fucking case for yoga as a preventative medicine approach to lots of diseases. And therefore it's on the spectrum with preventative, I don't wanna say medicine, but preventative care, which saves money. It, it, it keeps employees on their job. Like there's a lot of, of um, logic you could build and cases you could build for how what we do as yoga teachers saves money. And so when we then say, oh, it's five bucks a student or 20 bucks a class, we're just encouraging people to look at what we do in a way that devalues it. And even outside of that, the most important part is how you feel. Do you think you're going to want to teach a class where you're getting paid 25 bucks? Do you think you're going to want to teach a class where people are coming and putting $5 in the till? And who knows how many people are going to, no, you're going to resent that class in about a week. Now, having said all that, yes, you do pro, pro bono stuff. Yes, you volunteer for stuff. Yes, you do sliding scale. Yes, you sometimes do stuff, I said pro bono, but free. Yes, you work for nonprofit. All those things can be true and all the other things I'm saying can be true at the same time. That's like the new saying, right? Two things can be true at the same time, but it's really freaking true. Because if you hear this and you're just like, oh my God, Karen, in my community, I live in, I don't know, fill in the blank. and Like, I get that. And at the same time, that's not to say that we as yoga teachers can't also offer our services in some cases in ways that meets a need that is being of service that, you know, but that can't be everything, right? That can't be everything because you're a professional and you, part of being a professional and offering a professional service is being paid for it. Okay. So we're living in, in this world where people are paying for things, right? We're not living in another place where people are not paying for things. And this holds, even when we go all the way back 
to the genesis of yoga thousands and thousands of years, yes, things were different then. Yes, things are different now. Yes, we are teaching a practice that started thousands of years ago. And at the same time, there are certain aspects of it that are different. And that's not to discredit or devalue. It's to just move with the times. So this, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I want this to be an opportunity for you at the beginning of this year to ask yourself, am I undervaluing my services? And if I am, why? What are the beliefs that I have around that? Why won't I charge more? What are the, what's the resistance I'm bumping up against? And then also ask yourself from a business side, what kind of money do I want to make? Do I want my teaching to be something that can sustain me? Do I want my teaching to be something that can contribute to my family's bottom line? Like there is a lot of things that you can do as a yoga teacher to create a steady stream of income. And yes, that is a conversation that you can have. And it's not anathema to being a yoga teacher. It's not a problem. It's not a bad thing. We can have all these conversations at the same time. We can be of service. And at the same time, we can pursue business goals around our role as a teacher and have goals and motivations and, and things that are revenue goals and wanting to make money and wanting to bring in money and wanting to create a sustainable business. All those things are okay. There's nothing about the fact that we're teaching yoga that makes any of this not okay. So having said all that, we've come to the end of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope that you have found some, something here that's been valuable for you. And, you know, I guess I just want to add one final piece. You know, as we talk about all of these things, I always say like all of these things boils down to really feeling confident as a teacher, you know, whether it's what we're charging, how are we queuing, what modifications are we offering, how we're assisting our students, like the things we talked about today. And so if you are looking to increase your confidence so that you can charge what you're worth, so you can queue with more confidence, go into the studio and just walk and talk and just all these things that to you, whatever it looks like in your mind, when you close your eyes and see yourself as the most confident teacher and you see it as a vision and you're not there yet and you want to get there, just send me a DM on Instagram and just tell me that you want to know how you can get there and I'll take you through my three-step process. And that's all it is. It's three steps. So I hope to hear from you. Uh, I'm on Instagram at barebonesyoga. If you're still listening, thank you. And I'll see you. I'll talk to you. <laughs> I won't see you, but I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. And thank you so much for being part of my community and for spending some time with me here on the show. I wanted to wrap up this episode with just a quick note. I have a brand new recorded workshop page, and I'm really excited to offer you an opportunity to watch recorded workshops whenever you want. I have the first installment of a workshop on the page on the website, and it is a short workshop all about how to give effective cues. And so all you need to do to watch this free workshop is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and you'll see the listing in the dropdown for recorded workshops. When you click that page, 
you'll see on that page the link to sign up to watch that recorded workshop. I'll be adding more workshops in the future to this page. And it's a way that you can access educational and growth information for teachers without having to make a workshop at a particular time. I love to get together with teachers live, both in person and of course online, which is where I'm doing most of my interaction with teachers right now. However, I appreciate that sometimes people can't make a workshop or the time doesn't work for them or they're in a different time zone. So I want you to know that this page can be a resource for you so that as you're out there and you have questions about different things, or you have maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes that you wanna to devote to your continuing education as a teacher, you can just go to my website, pull up this recorded workshops page, and there will be resources there for you to take a look at. And all of the workshops that I share are all designed at number one, giving you information, and number two, giving you the skills that come from getting that information. It doesn't do you any good if I'm just giving you information on anatomy. If I don't show you how you can use it in your teaching to grow as a teacher, to grow your impact, then it's really not very useful. So all my workshops will have that dual focus sharing a little bit and then showing you how to apply it. So I hope you'll check that out. If you have any questions or feedback, definitely let me know. Just send me an email, karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.